I'm sure that the title piqued your attention a little bit. And so tonight we are excited to bring Randy on the show to talk about the positive perspective of death. And so it's just going to be fun and, and new ways of looking at, at death from a different perspective. So let me start with my formal introduction. Hi, ladies. Welcome to the No Bad Day Show, Simple Wellness for Women Show. I'm Jolene Fisher, your host, and every episode of the No Bad Day Show will give you a view into the life of another woman. And she'll share her stories, her triumphs, her struggles, and the lessons that she's learned along her path. And my goal as your host is to bring topics to you that are relevant and encouraging, because I want you to be inspired to be the hero of your own story. And this is why I introduce you to brave women doing hard things who are truly living out the motto of no bad days. And so I invited Randy Johnson to be here with us tonight. And Randy, she's a passionate human being. She's all about finding the joy in life and bringing out positivity in the people that she surrounds herself with. She is uh, definitely committed to this topic that we're talking about tonight. And so I'm excited to hear more about that. But Randy is an attorney and she has a law firm, Black City Law in Spokane, Washington. And this is where she really truly feels like she can empower and impact society on a deeper level. And she has her own family and her main mission in life is to truly empower people and take steps to protect and restore joy. So one of the ways that she's doing that and we'll talk about tonight is through end of life doula. And so this is a recent certification for her and something that she's been doing for um, some time to really help people process through that end of life experience. But we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about uh, family planning and what that looks like. And so I'm so excited, Randy, for you to be here tonight to talk to us about all these things that we don't typically venture into. So yeah, thank you for having me, Jolene. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this. Um, I don't usually get, usually when I get into these topics, you know, it's very um, metered and we're talking about one specific topic, but if we're going to you know, let the fire hose out and let me loose. Uh, I'll try not to <laughs> go too far because, you know, not everyone has practiced for their own death. That, you know, that's part of our training. Um, I'm, I'm comfortable in those uncomfortable spaces, but I, I, would, I really want to share that because there's so much growth that happens, as you know, you know, when we allow ourselves to get uncomfortable. So thank you again for letting me talk about this. Oh, you're welcome. Well, thank you for being here. So one of the first things I like to warm us up with is a question about, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background where you grew up. Yeah, so I'm from Miami, Florida, and um, I was born and raised in Florida. I didn't leave South Florida until I went to college, I went to Florida State University. And then I went to law school in Portland, Oregon. I decided that was a little bit boring. So I moved to New York City and um, started my career as a lawyer. And um, I was there for about three years or so. Then I moved back to Seattle with a big law firm and met my husband. And then we moved to Spokane, Halloween of 2020. 2020, 2012. That's our book anniversary with a four-month-old, and um, here we are. I've been here ever since. My mom and my sister and my brother-in-law now live out here, and we've got two little girls. And it's been 
pretty cool. I've got two businesses. My husband owns a business. He's a chiropractor here in town. And, um, you know, Spokane's home. Awesome. Well, what was your favorite location that you've ever lived? Hmm. Let's see, my favorite location. You know, I really liked every place that I lived. It really served me for the lessons that I learned in those places. Uh, I'm very content where I am now. I don't know that we'll be in Spokane forever and ever, but um, this is definitely home. We're rooted, you know, bought the house, got the the businesses, everyone's feeling at home. And, you know, since I pulled my family from the East Coast, I think they'd be mad if I left. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still have family? Oh, all your family moved over here? No, just my mom, my sister and brother-in-law, but my dad's in Florida and I've got family in New York and in Puerto Rico. Uh, Puerto Rico is like my heart's home. So I try to go there every couple of years at least to check back in. I do have quite a bit of family out there. So um, it's nice to fill that heart bucket back up with, with that, uh, that love. But um, as far as like every day, I think we're spoken I love it. <laughs> well, Lilac City Law is the name of your practice, which is definitely a Spokane uh, yes, with my purple walls. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're there in your office. Yeah. That's great. How long have you been in practice? Um, I've been a practicing attorney since 2007. Okay. And we've been here since 12. I've had the firm since 2013. So seven years. Yeah. And, and what got you into family planning as far as all the things you could have gone into as a lawyer? Was that what you started with or did you eventually get there? I started with federal disability benefits, and we and Lilac City Law still does that. We do social security disability, service-connected veteran benefits for our wounded warriors. But um, several years ago, after I was a mom with an infant and a toddler, it came to my attention that I hadn't sufficiently done any planning for what if I pass, what if my husband and I are gone or we're not able to care for our children. Well, who will? And what happens if you don't put your own planning in place and to be mindful and loving and really intentional about the values that you can put forth on a plan that if I can't be there to parent, I need to give some instructions for the care of my children because nobody, nobody knows your kids like a mama, right? So you got to put that down. And um, so I got my own counsel and figured out, you know, went through that process and was like, whoa, I, I do law for a living. Who else doesn't have this done that's a, a mom and dad of little kids? Oh my gosh, everyone. So we right. rolled that out and um, gosh, it just really aligns with all the other things that I'm really passionate about, but I really think it fits very well into, you know, we do guardianships for incapacitated individuals and um, with the social security, it's just really all together. We're just protecting folks and helping making sure that um, the way that we love each other continues even after I'm no longer here. Right. So if you have a young family in front of you and you could tell them, like, let's, let's get it all out there. Like, how would you talk to, a, a, you know, passionately to this family about, if they do this, this is what would happen. If they don't do this, this is kind of what would happen with your kids or your estate. Because we need to teach people 
really what what they would be missing out on or what the kids could grow up like differently if they right. don't plan versus what they do. Right. So I like to start with that parent and child dynamic, that centered approach, as opposed to, you know, your kids might not get the assets of the house or that, I mean, at the end of the day, and I'm sure most parents feel just like me, I don't really care about any of the dollars and cents if my children are not with the people that we know, love, and trust. And I should, I am responsible for choosing who those children go with. Um, and I don't want that to fall in the hands of grieving, fighting, angry loved ones who are all just trying to do the best they can, but they're guessing as to what we wanted for them. I want to put that all down with guidance, with intention on paper. So I start with, hey, you, you've got little kids, hey, me too. They're going to be dependent on a grown-up, someone, for the next 15, 20 years. Could be longer if I have a child with special needs. Um, they might need a little bit longer to love on and, and need a little bit extra. And I say, well, if you didn't come home today from work and you've got a 15-year-old waiting for you or what have you, what, do you have a plan? Do they know what to do? Um, does anyone know where your stuff is? Do they know, and, and also importantly, does, does anybody know what I would want for myself? Decisions for who, who takes care of me, where do I live, where do I die, which is also really an important question. There's so many things. And so when I have a family in front of me, we just, we go through question by question. Okay, let's really just close our eyes and, and think about this. Let's paint this picture. In this scenario, what happens? And frequently, you know, it's a really intimate, sensitive topic. You know, there's a, there are tears. There's laughter. There's tears. Um, and that's okay. It has to be okay because these are important topics. And if we, we have to give ourselves permission to go there so that we can really do this work in a meaningful way. So, you know, we'll, we'll be in there for an hour to two hours sometimes just writing it out. You know, this is what I want for me. This is what I want for my nine month old. If I don't come home tomorrow, she needs to know what parenting decisions I would have made for her if I were here. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> so we're talking about a will is what, what's going on with your estate as well as what's going on with children. So, but running the whole gamut of ages and whether people have kids or not, what do you recommend is just kind of the baseline for people in terms of estate planning or family planning? Right. So certainly if you don't have dependent children, we don't need to talk about guardians, right? We can just eliminate that part of the conversation, which takes up, at least in my office, a whole, that's like the biggest conversation because I like to start there because that's, that's the most important person if I can't be there for them. But if we don't have children to talk about or they're grown and they're making their own decisions now and everybody's great, um, I think everybody needs a will. Even if you have, you own nothing, you lease a car, you rent a home, you're living paycheck to paycheck, honestly, you still need a will. Why? Because you want to say to the world, this Johnny is the person that I want to be in charge of whatever needs to happen. Something still needs to happen after someone dies. Let's nominate the person. Let's, let's pick that person out that we trust who's just going to be in charge of doing the paperwork or making those calls to, you know, what happens with my body, you know, if it's for final arrangements, that's 
an important set of decisions too. So it's not just about money. It's also about um, how do we want to be remembered and very much choosing that person sets the tone for how we're going to be remembered. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about how you came to the decision to become an end of life doula. That's a crazy story. Um, so I, I think a lot of expecting mothers have like wild and crazy dreams and visions when they're pregnant. And when I was pregnant with my eldest, who will be eight next week, um, I just kept dreaming about like the transition and those chapters and with birth being as sacred and holy a transition time where a woman becomes a mother, I think we need to bring more reverence and respect and um, holiness to the, the birth and to whatever that next life looks like for you. And I, I didn't even know that was a thing. I just thought, oh, what a beautiful idea. Like if you, could, if you could have someone just be there to support you at the end. And then I, you know, the Googles just started looking it up and wouldn't you know, that's a thing. So, so I just went down this road researching. There's a lot of different, you know, schools of thought around how we approach that. Um, and different kinds of certifications based on different philosophies. I chose the one that really worked, like resonated most with me and um, did that last year. Awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> How many people have you worked with now through that process? So interestingly, right as I was graduating, uh, I graduated end of last year, then it was the holidays. So, you know, I was just kind of formulating how do I want to approach this? And then the new year happened and I, incidentally, I, um, I created a curriculum, a course, a business course for new doulas who, uh, who've never been self-employed and don't know how to start a business and wanted some help ramping up. So I took several students through that and that was the beginning of the year. And I was like, okay, great. I'm going to get going. Oh, there's a pandemic and you can't go with people in the hospital. So I got a little derailed, um, oddly enough. So sidetrack, but it has given me a lot of time to really think about, you know, cause there's so much news about death and just realizing where my place is in this death positive movement. You know, we don't need to treat death as you have failed to live. Like there's nothing worse than dying. Certainly we don't want to um, anguish and pain or see our loved ones tortured, you know, riddled with pain and, and anguish. And but that's a quality of life conversation. We, we have to stop vilifying death. And, um, if we can do that and come to it with a different kind of energy, you can bring joy in all spaces to the very end. And so um, it's been a helpful and growing time just trying to figure out, okay, well, when we're allowed back in the hospital and have more than one person, one visitor per, per patient, you know, because if it's between me and your spouse, I think your spouse should go. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but we have set up some some ability to do Zoom. Oddly enough, like even in a desk space, we can still do that. Um, you know, virtual vigils are a thing. 
Um, being able to hold virtual funerals are a thing because people can't come together now where they would. Um, and there's a, I think they're so, it's so important. So it's really offered me an opportunity to be creative and think through, you know, what can I bring to this space? Um, my particular interest in the transition of end of life is working with families who are needing to say goodbye to babies and children and working with the young person, but also with their parents primarily and helping um, facilitate that conversation energetically, spiritually, emotionally, because I mean, there's not even a term. I, I think death phobia is, is like the worst of the worst when it comes to parents who have to say goodbye to a baby born or unborn children. Um, there's not even a word for that. You know, you have widow and widower. You've got, you know, those, you've got terms for that, but you don't have a term for a mother who's miscarried or a mother who has a stillborn baby. Like, there's no word for that. And um, that really needs to change. So that's the space I would really, I want to help be with that person as they're actively transitioning through that. So. Yeah. And what about beyond just the, day that that person passes how do you support people beyond that yeah so yes of course it's those last hours the last moments sitting vigil i believe nobody should ever die alone that's really important um someone should hold the space there but you're right we end of life doulas are frequently hired when a person receives a terminal prognosis maybe that's Dream, you know, doctors never know, of course, you know, it's like they never know when your baby's going to be born. They don't, they don't know when you're going to die either. But, you know, they have a sense based on lab work and, and objective measures. Maybe we think you have three months, 12 months, what have you. And at some point along in there, a person says, I would really love some support to help me have conversations with my brother whom I've not spoken to in 30 years or I really like someone to sit with me and help me make phone calls or help me um, just cry, do that ugly, ugly cry that I don't necessarily want to do in front of my wife. Oh, but, that's you want, awesome. but you want someone to have, to, to witness you. It's really important to be witnessed in our grief and to witness others in grief. That and that's how we can heal and reclaim our joy after a loss is if we don't hide, we don't stifle the, you have to let it out a hundred times if you have to, but you, you know, it's okay. It's okay to cry. And I think that's also a space that end of life doulas can really um, empower our communities is just to hold space for that. We have group um, in ancient times, there used to be, grief rituals, community grief rituals, and not because we're all centered around a person who has died, not a funeral, but like once a month, once a moon quarter, the community would come together and grieve, grieve collectively, grieve for ourselves and not just for a death, but grieve the loss of an opportunity, grieve the, grieve the loss of a job, grieve the loss of whatever. We lose so many things and it's okay to just not be okay with how how where you are right now yeah and being connected into the community as to where people can find 
help for their grief after the loss of a loved one. So I'm assuming that end of life doulas have connections in the community of, yes. of places they can go and, and see. Yes, we, we are connectors to resources. You know, we're not therapists. We're not medical professionals. We're here to support and to encourage and to empower. Um, but certainly there are places where, hey, I think there's a physician that might might suit your needs where you are right now, or maybe I'm seeing that you're making unhealthy eating choices. Here is someone who's a professional who specializes in this. So, you know, I'm just kind of there to help be that impartial person. I'm not, I'm not your spouse. I'm not your child. I'm not your sister. And I'm not going to take your choices personally. I'm just here to see you make the best choices that you're ready to make. Oh, wow. So for people who live in Spokane, we know who to come to, but for people who might be watching this that don't live in the area, how do yeah. they find an attorney that is going to be suitable for their family's needs? And then also finding an end of life doula, if that is something someone's listening to and they're like, oh, I want to find somebody in my area. Are there resources? And especially for the attorney question, how would you suggest people go about finding a qualified person for that niche? You know, I think there are, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of attorneys who do estate planning, right? But not everybody does it in the same way. I think it's okay to interview the law firm and the attorney that you want to work with. Because from a period of time standpoint, you know, we might have the whole thing done from um, um, consult to execution in, in 30 days, right? But there's lasting effects to what we draft together and you need to feel really comfortable just letting it all hang out. And, you know, it's like, and I don't think we as a society do this enough either, but you should really interview your doctors. You know, you shouldn't just like choose the person from the roster and be like, well, you know, they're covered under my insurance. I'll go see Dr. Smith. Well, you should really have a frank conversation and be like, do I like Dr. Smith? I'm really, you know, he doesn't really do it for me. I'm out. Go find someone else. And that's what consults should be used for. You know, you should really be like, are we a match? Do I like you? Yeah, I can work with you. All right, I'm going to tell you all my deepest, darkest secrets and tell you that, you know, my uncle so-and-so should never be around my children because he's an addict and a gambler and he steals money. If you don't feel comfortable telling your attorney that so we can be very clear what shouldn't happen, that's not your right person. <laughs> No, I, mean, I, I would think people could feel like they could tell their attorney anything because attorney client privilege, just much like a therapist, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. But from like a personality perspective, you might feel like, oh, this person might judge me or they won't get me or, you know, and then you find yourself withholding and that doesn't help you at all. No, it doesn't. No, that's right. How often should somebody revisit their will once it's done? Oh gosh, I tell people not more than three years should go by um, before you dust that thing off and give it a read through. <laughs> I mean, it's not fun reading, you know, pour a glass of wine, but, um, you know, things happen, especially when you're working with our families, because, you know, when you're in your twenties and thirties and forties, things are moving super fast. Um, 
you're buying and selling things, you're having more children, the people that you've nominated, if you initially nominated a grandparent to raise your children, but now that grandparent has passed away or they've become sick, maybe you're taking care of them. That's not a good choice anymore. That's not personal, Grandma. We just need to make some different choices, right? So this is really a time of life that you, you just got to look at it yeah, it's because things change. And, and even when they don't change, it's nice just to look at it again and, and refresh and remember. Um, yeah, so I would say every two to three years or when a thing happens, you bought and sold another thing, you've moved out of state, uh, you got divorced, you remarried, you know, all of these things are transitions in our lives that probably indicate a time to refresh the, the wording on your document. Right. For us, it was, we adopted our son. Right. And so right. it's like, you got a whole nother child. Yeah. Whole nother child. And that child needs to be included in the will. Cause <laughs> that would be terrible if we died all of a sudden. And he was like left out. Going, what about <laughs> me? <laughs> yeah. Oh, so tell us about how you walk people through the, the process of the will when it's just an individual you're talking to and you're saying, talk to us about your end of life procedures and how we, you want to move forward with that. What are all the things we should be considering when we're thinking about death? Sure. So I think we all deserve the very best experience of death possible. Like so far as we all basically know, we're only going to do this once in this body, having this experience. Um, you know, and for those of us who have given birth, like before I had my first child, I had never given birth before. And there are just things I knew I didn't know, right? So you have to ask questions or you review things or you look things up. We as a society don't tend to do that when it's coming towards end of life. And so from a high level, certainly questions like, you know, what kind of life support am I willing to accept? You know, what how far am I willing to allow the medical community to come to um, maintain my body to make, you know, to stay alive? And for some people that's like, oh my gosh, if, if there's a machine you could hook me up to, keep me plugged in. Okay, that's your choice, but you should at least have the opportunity to make that decision. And if you don't put these documents in place and set that forth in writing, how the heck would a person know that that's what Johnny wanted? They don't know. So, you know, you've got to do everyone a favor, yourself, your loved ones, and let them know what you want. So that's like the high level. We've added some additional um, topics, if you will, issues to consider, like being on a ventilator, especially in light of COVID. You know, do you want to be on a ventilator? Well, what if this happens? What if this happens? Um, then you've got on a kind of more granular level we're thinking about okay well someday this day will come where there's a day two days left if you had the choice if we could where would you want to be statistics show that around 70 percent of people would prefer to die at home well, most of us don't put this stuff in writing. And by the time that all happens in its application, 
about 70% of people die a very medicalized death in the hospital, hooked up to all sorts of beeping things in life and fluorescent lights and this and that and people running in and out. And had you asked them before that happened, they would have told you that is not how they wanted to die. So it's very important for me to have these very frank conversations to say, you know, if you could choose, like it's one thing if, God forbid, you get into a horrific car accident, one, two, three, and you know, you, you die in an emergency room or something like that. But if you knew it was coming, I have cancer, I have a heart disease, I have something, and you know you've got a year or less to go, would you prefer to be at home? How, what comfort measures are you willing to accept? Do you want um, someone to come and visit you from the church? Do you want um, to only eat purple things? I mean, you can be very specific, but, um, our loved ones just don't know, and it really relieves our loved ones of the heartache when they know that you've left them instructions on how to care for you. They don't have to guess. Caregiver fatigue is real. We will burn our loved ones out, and the more instruction we can say, up front, I really gave some thought about this, husband. This is how I want, I never want you to touch my feet. You can put some socks on them, like don't ever touch my feet. But you can hold my hand and read to me. I would like that. Like how lovely if we left our, we left our loved ones these notes with instruction on how we can both enjoy these last moments together. Seems like a area, well, at least for me, I've left blank on my will. <laughs> other than other than the most high level one that you've talked about, right? right? Cremated or buried. And um, the life support. That that's the only one I've I've put on there. I don't even know if I've gone so far as saying cremated. <laughs> so ah, and those are things like funeral directors will tell you those kinds of conversations, those decisions will break up families because child number one thinks, well, when we were at the lake last, mom was saying she wanted to be cremated. And child number two says, no way, we were picking out our headstones two years ago together. And now we have a fighting. Okay. Yeah, that's important to have it in writing, not just say it out loud. Yeah. <laughs> Randomly. Uh, um, what are some things that are are binding in court versus some things that aren't like things that are said like cremation for example how does that get worked out in a family structure with no will it it becomes really a circus unfortunately because nothing whatever you told you know your daughter but your son heard differently at some point a decision will have to be made and whoever ends up being the person represented, you know, the executor, that kind of thing. They'll ultimately probably be the person to make that decision. And then anyone, you know, the person whose ideas about what mom wanted didn't get played out, it just becomes like lasting wounds on the family. And it shouldn't be over, you know, someone's death. Right. But if no will is in place when a family member dies, what happens? So if no will is in place and you die in test state, um, the court, the state in which you live, also has a plan for you. So 
there's one. So you were asking me like, what happens if somebody doesn't do anything? Well, I mean, there's still, it'll still all get distributed, but it's going to take probably a lot longer. It'll probably be more expensive and likely somebody or others feelings will get hurt. And they're all going to inject their own ideas of what the person who died wanted for them, didn't want for them. We should have given a Johnny. Oh, but he's an addict. Oh, but he already took the good China. I mean, they're going to fight over just every little thing. Oh, the cousin went in and took the pool table. That happens. It just, it's, you know, because grief, unhealed grief, you know, it just brings out, sadly, like some of the ugliest parts of us. You know, when you don't really feel like there's a plate, you didn't have that last conversation and you still, you want, you wanted that, I'm sorry, or you wanted that goodbye and you're angry and you're sad. You, we don't always make the best choices in that space. I can imagine uh, that that would be really difficult and I haven't had to be in that space yet. My parents and my husband's parents are still alive and I haven't lost a brother or sister yet. So no one directly related to me that I would have to take care of has passed yet. But um, one of the things that's crossing through my mind right now with our will, my husband and I's will, is that it's in a little folder downstairs in a downstairs file. And I don't think anyone knows where it, they would find it. So what are your suggestions on, on that? Just like that to us. <laughs> Someone other than the two of you needs to know where that is. Um, there are a couple of choices. So many of us here in the Northwest have safes at home um, where we keep important documents. I think safes are a great place to put it. Uh, I don't think we should put it in our underwear drawers or just, you know, randomly on our bookshelves. It should be a protected item because we never want it to be said that maybe so-and-so tampered with it. I, you know, you don't want to get into those conversations ever if you can avoid it. So um, the person that you nominate to be your trustee or your executor, whatever, um, they should know where it is. Other people, especially our, our elderly population, they very much um, like the idea of those safety deposit boxes, you know, at a financial institution. That's cool. You can do that. Um, and so what I tell folks there is if you want to have one of those, you should put that person, that executor's personal representative name as okay to get into that safety deposit box. Otherwise you've just sort of hidden it from everybody. <laughs> so somebody needs to know and have access to get in there. Cause the only other way they would know is if they knew who our lawyer was, right? Right. And most lawyers aren't keeping the originals to your wills anymore, you know? So used to be that attorneys would hold on to the original, give you a copy maybe, and then someone died and the loved one knew that, uh, you know, attorney Johnson did this. But what ended up happening a lot of times, and I think why, why that um, habit has fallen out of favor is that, you know, people sell law firms, people retire, attorneys die, the building burns down and now the attorney like, oh crap, that was your own copy. That was the original, right? So uh, at least for our office, we return to you your originals. We'll keep a cloud copy secured up there in case your house burns down and somebody needs a copy. There is still a backup somewhere, but I'm not holding the original. Yeah, because like you said, something can happen to you and 
if it were stuck in the cloud somewhere, not accessible, I mean, it has to. Right. I think on. a lot of people have experienced this when you've been to like, you know, your family went to the, to the, to the family physician for 30, 40 years. And now the, you know, the guy finally retired and they're like, Oh, where's my medical records? Oh, gosh. Well, is there anything else that you want to talk about that you're passionate about right now that we maybe haven't covered yet? Hmm. Those are my biggest passions right now are to really invite these conversations into our, into our homes. You know, when we're sitting around having conversations about the state of the world, the really difficult conversations we're already needing to have about privilege and racism and resources and economy, we should and can also be having conversations to say, mom, if you get sick, what do you need me to know? Help me help you and help us. Um, I'm a parent. I need to nominate someone to raise these babies for me if I can't. Um, and these are conversations we need to be having often, openly and often, and get it down on paper. <laughs> <laughs> what if somebody doesn't have a lawyer? Can they just write it down? Is that even a binding document? Oh, I don't recommend you do that at all. <laughs> I know Not you don't. No, don't do that. <laughs> Um, there are some, like, we call them ancillaries, but there are some other documents that um, you can get, like Providence has a great one, like your last five wishes, you can fill that out, that document's really cool. Um, my law firm, actually online, we've got a bunch of free resources, and one of them is um, a guardianship nomination form, there's... Um, there's a pulse. Every state has a pulse. That's the physician-ordered life-saving. Oh, my brain's not working. It's the end of the day. But anyway, like an end-of-life document that you and your physician can have a conversation about around any life-saving or life-ending measures. I think those are important, especially for our senior population and high-risk population. It's very important that you um, you tell your intentions. And I think also importantly and a group, uh, a demographic we never, ever, ever, ever talk about are pregnant women. So if we're gonna go so far as, and we should, to create a living will, you know, and, and say, at end of life, my quality of life is very important to me, and if, we if I have none, please allow my body to die as I feel like my spirit has somewhere better to be, frankly. Um, but my, intentions, my decisions and wishes might change if I was also seven months pregnant. I might wish to stay plugged in, thank you. But if you don't make that distinction, if you don't have those conversations with your partner, with your decision maker, um, you're leaving them with a real heavy, heavy burden. And that should be a conversation that you have with them beforehand. Uh, Randy, I asked the audience if they had any questions for you. So We'll, we'll hang on here a while okay. longer while we talk about some of these topics that you've just brought up because uh, one of the things that was coming through my head is just what if people can't afford to hire a lawyer that maybe they're, they want to create a will. Of course they have kids they want to protect and all that stuff. What would be a, uh, an alternative that somebody could 
utilize if they they couldn't afford uh, and it, you know the whole meal deal package. So a lot of state bar associations have some templates and legal forms that are free for the public. So I would tell folks in any state um, to start there. Um, there are also frequently through the bar associations, attorneys will offer pro bono time or low bono time to do these will clinics, especially for veterans, usually through the law schools. That's another good resource is to contact a law school and say, hey, do you have a student legal clinic? The students are always supervised by a licensed professional, you know, so you're, you're getting still quality legal valid documentation because it's very important when we're doing estate planning that um, it was validly executed. It said the magic words it needed to say. It's not saying things that will invalidate other things. So you do want to be very mindful of it. It's not something you just want to write on the back of a cocktail napkin. That's not going to work for you. Um, but there are some free and lower cost options for folks, typically through bar associations and law schools. Okay, thank you. That's really helpful. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about your family and what you're passionate about within your own family unit unit, and uh, what makes you tick as a mom and like just mm. you as a person, not aside from what you do and yeah. what you're passionate about in that life? So thanks for asking that. It's like we don't, we don't ask other parents about that. So <laughs> I do think um, about that a lot. And, you know, my kids are young. I'm raising girls. And I, it's very important for me um, to raise independent young women um, that they don't have this um, mindset that they'll be rescued or swept off their feet or Prince Charming's going to come. I want them to be to feel very confident and secure um, in their own decision making ability, and that they feel competent and confident in doing those life skills that like everybody everybody should know it shouldn't just be our sons that learn how to change a tire it shouldn't just be our sons that know how to clean out a gutter or um, make appointments for things like we we need to be teaching our girls how to do all of these things too so that they feel empowered even if they don't want to cool I don't do those things but I should know how to do them right so um, that's really important to me <laughs> teaching my children independent life skills. I totally 100% agree with that. We had my husband went out of town not that long ago and I was like hey girls get in here and I was remodeling my bedroom and I was like I need your help mounting this tv to the wall and so I taught him how to use a drill and how to drill into the wall and it was so fun and I was teaching him new terms I didn't know what the word flush meant like make the nail flush with the wall or like what is that word oh my gosh yeah so independence, super important to me. Like, you got to know how to take care of yourself. And the other thing is to have a real healthy sense of play and adventure. There's always that there should always be time. And I think so many of us who are type A, and probably most of the women listening to this podcast, I'm sure are all, you know, like-minded. And I feel like I just got to get things done. And we got to get the work done. We got to do this. It's super important. And, um, I have to really stop and remind myself that, look, those things are going to get done when they get done, but it's also okay to stop and play because that when I allow myself just to rest and to play and to enjoy the moment that I'm in, 
that's where we birth creative ideas. And if we're always go, 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 work, 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 there's no space for that. And it's a really good way, you know, we workaholics, I'm a recovering workaholic, I'm trying to practice that daily. Um, that's where we can hide out because that's familiar. It's familiar for me to be busy and work. Um, it's unfamiliar and uncomfortable sometimes for me to be like, I'm just gonna sit here in the backyard and listen to the birds and see what happens. And so I'm really working, working. I'm parenting mindfully, consciously when my children are small to say, we don't have to work all the time. Like this homeschooling thing, like we were not doing school all day long. We were not doing that. And I'm not fretting about it. Like they're okay. Yes. They were playing outside. It's fine. It's good. Yes. One of my math assignments for my youngest daughter who just turned 16 was we put a mural on her wall and we had to measure it out and mark like half the distance and use this use this, um, oh, a leveler and, and a tape measure and do some math. And so she's learning skills. I love that kind of school where you're busy yeah. doing something useful for life, but at the same time learning, so. Yes, we cooked. That's, that's math. There's math, there's instructions. We gotta read the instructions. Like, okay, we bake bread. That's school, cool. Let's go outside and play. Like, <laughs> that's, that's great. You know, so I think play and adventure, independence, there was a third thing. Oh, I am very mindful about how I talk about myself and my body around my children. I love it. I have never once used any derogatory terms about how I look or how I feel around them ever. Right. When, we, when we're talking about food choices, it's never because it's low fat or low calorie or whatever. It's just because it's delicious and it's organic and it's fresh and it tastes good. And when I go to the gym, it's to get strong and it's never to get skinny or to lose weight. And I'm very mindful of that. They're going to feel that regardless, but they should always, I'm always talking about like, oh, I look lovely in this or I'm beautiful. And so are you. And we, we need to hear that. Oh, true. Oh my goodness. Positive self-talk, not negative. No. Positive self-talk. Because you're all about the joy, right? And empowering yes. women, which includes your little women in your yes. life. They need to feel joy in their own little bodies, too. Yeah, I love that. Uh, especially, I'm raising two girls, too. So I, I really, uh, all the things you said, I totally 100% do in my life, too. And and now they're 16 and 17, and I see the fruits of that. That's so great. Yeah, yeah. Great. So I love it. Well, you are a woman of adventure. I see on your Facebook, you guys are doing all sorts of things outside and yeah. having fun as a family. So that's just uh, what it's all about. Having fun, making memories. Because you, like, kind of a conversation I had earlier with my son and daughter today was that when I went and visited my mom and dad recently on a trip just last week, we brought eight teenagers across the state to go visit my mom and dad. And that's an they're they're still like 70 and 64 they're at their ages and but you never know like why not go experience life and create memories while you have them around because any one of us could turn around tomorrow and not be here and so mm -hmm. I think that's important to be mindful of as well 
creating lasting memories. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Well, we, I really appreciate you being here today. And hey, thanks for having me. This is really fun. Good. I'm glad you liked it. Interview style is less painful, right? It's like, yes. oh, just you. Who you are. Um, for now, we'll just say goodbye to each other and thank you for being on the call today and we'll catch up later. Thank you. Have You're welcome. Okay, bye, Randy.